Let me read to you three of the verses we've already had so well read to us. Just to remind you of the last, the very last moments of Christ's life and the moment of his death. John 19, 28, 29, and 30. After this, after all those things we just read, after this, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Father, we come before you, and it's the abundance of your good gift in Jesus that we've just sung about and heard about and heard witness to by your own word. It's that abundant gift that gives us confidence now to pray to you and ask you to meet us with the same abundant gift of the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Christ. Lord, we pray you destroy the accusations of the devil, the joy-destroying work of eroded assurance, and Lord God, I pray that you'd bring your people and even those who are not your people into fullness of joy through your sorrows. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On Good Friday, we remember the death of Jesus. And this particular Good Friday, we're focused not on the hours leading up to his death, which we've just read about, but on the very moment of his death. In the hours leading up to the death of Jesus, he was betrayed by Judas, arrested by the Pharisees and their soldiers, denied by Peter, despised by the crowds, flogged by Pilate, crucified by Roman soldiers, and then he comes to his very last breath, the very last words he speaks in the Gospel of John. If you have even a shred of humanity, you know that the hour of someone's death is sacred. And if you've been given new life by the Holy Spirit, you know that this is the most sacred death of all time. But the death of Jesus, in many ways, even though it was the most sacred of all time, it's not, it's not unique. He died like other men. His lungs stopped breathing. His heart stopped pumping. His mind ceased responding to the world of the living. The way he was killed is not unique either. He's the most famous man who have ever been crucified, but he's, he's not the only man. The Romans, the Persians, the Carthaginians all used crucifixion as a method of execution, as a method of capital punishment. Jesus died the same way that hundreds and thousands of others have throughout history. He died just like the two thieves who hung beside him, one on his right and one on his left. And yet, we cannot think of the death of Jesus as ordinary. It's utterly unique. And tonight I want us to think about three ways. It's unlike every other human death that has ever transpired. 
The death of Jesus is utterly unique for at least three ways. And the first is this. It was totally, from start to finish, intentional. His was an intentional death. Did you see that opening comment in the verses I just read? After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now fulfilled. He died knowing that everything he had come to do was now fulfilled. Don't mistake this phrase. He's not saying he knew at this point there was nothing else he could do, that he was stuck, that there were no angels coming to deliver him, that there was not going to be any escape from this execution. When he says knowing that all was now finished, he's saying that every single thing he had ever planned to do with his life was done. Now, Sarah Groves is the song where she says, you try to live in love, death comes and interrupts. This is the exact opposite of the death of Jesus. His death was not an interruption to his plans. His death was his plans. And he came at the hour of his death knowing that every single thing he had planned to accomplish, he had accomplished. And in fact, the primary thing that he had aimed to do his entire life was to die well and to die sacrificially. And he's saying here that everything was now done. One of the things that makes Jesus' death different than every other human death is that he knew why he was going to die, how he was going to die, and when he was going to die. We might get one out of three of those. We know why we're going to die, because we're sinners. But Jesus knew why he was going to die, when he was going to die, and how he was going to die. He knew why he was going to die. John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He had actually come to give his life for others. It was the whole purpose why he came and he knew it. I don't know whether it dawned on him in childhood or cultivated that awareness as he read the scriptures in adult life, but he knew throughout his mission that he was going to die as a good shepherd. Not only did he know why he was going to die, he knew how he was going to die. Something like nine times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he makes a comment almost identical to this one from Mark chapter 10, where he says, see, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. After three days, he will rise. So the people, the place, the mockery, the scorn, none of it were surprising. None of it caught him off guard. It was all unfolding exactly as he knew it would before it happened. He knew why he was going to die. He knew how he was going to die. And in Matthew 26, too, we even learned that before it happened, he knew when he was going to die. He says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered to be crucified. And, and as an illustration of how just scrupulously he was trying to uh, fulfill a plan, he tells us, knowing that all was now finished, he actually jumps in and fulfills one more thing. He says, I thirst. 
And he really did thirst. One commentator has pointed out that part of crucifixion under the ancient Near Eastern sun would have just been the maddening thirst. But the main reason he says, I thirst, is not to get a drink. He's already experienced the most exquisite pain. It says that it's so he can fulfill the scriptures. He's actually on the cross recounting all of the messianic promises, every one of them in his mind, and making sure not one of them is dropped. And so he says, I thirst, and he's given some of the sour wine delivered to him on a hyssop branch. With that in mind, we can understand why he goes on to finish this, why why he says he's knowing all that would be, knowing that all was now finished. Psalm 69 actually tells us, for my thirst they give me sour wine to drink. Think about that, Psalm 69. Hundreds of years before he's even born, there's a prophecy about how the Messiah will get sour wine, not just any wine, but sour wine. On the, e, on, the, on the time he dies. Now, why is that all important? Twice in the history of our life together as a church and me getting to be one of your pastors, you have executed two of the most supreme surprise parties I have ever seen in my entire life. On my 10th anniversary as pastor here, and then again on the 20th anniversary of my pastorate here, I have walked into a room thinking one thing was going to happen and finding out that something completely different was happening. And the waves of emotion that come over you when you realize that there's been a whole group of people benevolently deceiving you (laughs) so that they can express their love to you is uncanny when you realize how much people have been thinking about you and carrying out a plan to do you good and to bless you, it's overwhelming. And here is Jesus knowing every detail of how he would die, every detail of how he would bless, every detail of how he would pay for your sins and accomplishing them one step after another. So we can't read the cross as Jesus making the best of a bad situation. The cross is Jesus perfectly executing the love he's had for you since before the world began. He is the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth and every single prophecy being fulfilled is him communicating to you. None of this was chance. It was all intentional. I had it my goal as my goal to buy you, and I knocked off one prophecy after another to make you more confident that I had come from God to pay for your sins. The second thing we notice here is not just the intentionality of Jesus' death, but the sovereignty of Jesus' death. Look at the sovereignty of Jesus' death. And as we do, think for a minute about the way we normally describe death. He succumbed to cancer. She lost her battle with dementia. They were killed when they veered into oncoming traffic. He was executed for his crimes. Death is never something we describe, the rare exception of suicide, in terms of something we control. 
Death is never something we describe in an active sense. Death overtakes us. It's the last enemy in our lives. It defeats us. But then read, read what it says about the death of Jesus. Read how different it is. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He's in control of the hour of his death. No one is taking his life from him. He is giving it up voluntarily himself. There's no sense in which the Romans executed him ultimately, but rather that he gave himself into the hands of the Romans to be executed. And in fact, this is Jesus' own interpretation of his death. John chapter 10, verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Now, how could Jesus talk this way about death? How could Jesus say at the hour of his death, I'm in control, I'm going to lay it down, I'm giving up my spirit? The only person who can talk like that is God himself. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 39 says, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. And 1 Samuel 2.6, the, the Lord kills and brings to life. This is the prerogative of God alone. There's only one person who can give and take away life. When you and I die, there's no us functioning to go grab it back. Only God can do that. And Jesus who's on the cross is God himself. Although he's fully man suffering and dying, it's God who is over all death. He's sovereignly in control of all death. How do you put together the idea that a man who was God gave himself over to death. I don't know if it's ever been put better than the Apostle Paul put it. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, when he was speaking to a group of elders, listen to the way he describes the Lord Jesus. He says to these elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he, that is God, obtained with his own blood. The only way for God to have blood, God is a spirit, is for God to become a man. And you see that perfect union and then he dies like a man, but he is giving up his spirit with total control over his life, like God. And so you see here, the intentionality of his death, the sovereignty of his death, and finally, his atoning death. This word atonement is, I learned this week, I didn't know this, one of the few theological terms that actually has its roots in the English language. Most of our theological terms come from the Greek or from Latin. But atonement is an English word which makes it kind of nice, its meaning is right on the face of it. There's an at-one-ment in atonement. In atonement, two parties that are at a distance, that are at enmity, they're unreconciled, they're at a distance, 
are made one. Not that we become God and God becomes man, but what was divided becomes united. What was separated becomes reconciled. And in Jesus' death, when he says, it is finished, he's saying the atonement is finished. This is the primary thing. You, you know, he's, he's dying with a cry of victory. He's dying with a, not I'm finished, not, not that's it for me, I've got nothing left. He's, he's not dying that way. He's dying declaring all that I came to do is accomplished. It is finished. And so he's saying that the reconciliation that he planned and that he executed and that he aimed for and that he accomplished is actually 100% completely done. It is finished. And to finish this reconciliation, there's a lot of component parts. I mean, nothing you really eat that's good to the taste has just one ingredient. All the best foods have more than one ingredient, except for some fruits, which are very good. But anything you make, anything you make has got multiple ingredients, and here are the ingredients that went into him finishing the atonement. One, he perfectly obeyed the law of God. Every single thing he had ever commanded from the heart, he did perfectly all the time. It is finished. All of the prophecies of the lamb that would be slain, of the animals that would be sacrificed to pay for sin, he accomplished. When John the Baptist looked at Jesus, he said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All those other lambs hadn't ultimately done anything, but when he died, it was finished. All the messianic prophecies about how he'd thirst, about how none of his bones would be broken, all of them were accomplished when he died. It was right there that it was finished. It was all done. And so in that one moment, the wrath of God was poured out completely on this one man, and it wasn't poured out partially. It wasn't poured out mostly. It wasn't like God blew off a little steam. All a hell's worth, an eternity's worth of wrath was poured into the very heart of the Son of God until there was no more left in the heart of God, and Jesus Christ could declare, it is finished. Amen. Now, believer. What does that do to your assurance of salvation? The great weakness of the church in our day is not that she doesn't have a perfect view of politics, which we often don't. It's, it's not that we haven't uh, become perfect, which we're not going to be this side of heaven. The great weakness in the church today is we have lost the joy of the Lord, the joy of our salvation, and that joy is inflamed and it grows when Christians are assured of their salvation, when they know that when they lie that, their head down on a pillow, if they were to die, they would go immediately immediately to the presence of God. If they were to be struck by a car, they would go immediately to the presence of God. If their life ends unlike the life of Jesus with all kinds of loose ends and lots of things you could say weren't accomplished and all kinds of things interrupted, all kinds of plans for self-improvement that were never finally accomplished. If you were to die right then in the most boring chapter of your life with no denouement, no climax, no, no, ups, no uptick, no, no sequel, just you in this incomplete person that you are, if you were to die right there, what do you know would happen? The Bible's proclamation to your soul 
is that everything that needed to transpire for you to go immediately to the presence of God when you die is finished. What are you going to do to add to it? Are you going to obey the law perfectly? It's already been done. He obeyed the law perfectly. He obeyed it till the last, and it is finished. You would insult the work of Christ if you tried to add to the work of Christ. What are you going to sacrifice in his place? There's people in the Philippines crucifying actual human beings in memory of Jesus. There's teenagers Young adults across North America cutting themselves to deal with their guilt and their fears. What blood are you going to let to assuage the guilt of God? There's no blood to let. It's been poured out in Christ. It is finished. What, what are you going to do? Are you going to build a perfect church? Are you going to build perfect relationships? Are you going to build his kingdom in some country? None of that is going to get you entrance into the kingdom of God. What gives you entrance into the presence of God the moment you die, in fact, right now if you believe, and the moment you did believe you were transferred from the presence of darkness into the presence of his son, the thing and the only thing alone that accomplishes that is the finished work of Christ. Believers, the works righteousness of Islam, the works righteousness of Catholicism, the works righteousness of Baptist morality that doesn't focus on the cross of Christ, all of these things put you back in the driver's seat where you're just gonna be a little better tomorrow, but they drain the joy right out of your soul. The only place that full and final joy can ever be acquired is in a long, hard gaze, or even a lame, pathetic gaze at the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's there that all salvation is accomplished and all salvation is finally and fully finished. And on top of that, there's a comfort for suffering Christians. We love active Christians in our day. Radical Christians, catalytic Christians, Christians that are world changers, Christians that make a difference. And that's all wonderful. I'd love to change the world and make a difference for Jesus Christ. But there's lots of Christians that lie on a bed, a bed of pain. There's lots of Christians that suffer. There's lots of Christians that can never go to church. There's lots of Christians that wind up in the hospital. There's lots of Christians that wind up with their health drained out of them early in their lives. What's the hope for them? They need to get busy for God? No, they need to look at the finished work of Christ where he says it is finished. Therefore, having justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've received our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives, and the weakest Christian who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives, and they live in a state of grace. They live under the grace of God. Many of us are demoralized by our failures. We are exasperated by our limitations. But the one work that needed to be done before you die has been done. It is finished. And not only does the word of Christ have something vital to say to our assurance 
Not only does it have something important to say to our sufferings, but it's the perfect, accus- it's the perfect answer for all the devil's accusations. One of the things we forget in the Christian life is that we're not our only problem. We are a big problem, but we are not our only problem. Our great problem also lies in the fact that a demonic being of unparalleled power next to God has as his sole mission to destroy our faith and our joy in the Lord. And he loves not only temptation, we often think of it as temptations, but he loves to destroy the joy of Christians through, their, through his accusations. And you know what? He really doesn't care what kind of accusations work with you. He's a ruthless murderer. For some, he will work you over on that one sin, that one moment of shame you could never imagine God forgiving you of. And there's shame and guilt and condemnation that the devil will heap on your soul to destroy the joy of the Lord in your spirit. But that accusation is answered with three beautiful words. In the Greek, just one word, tetelestai. It is finished. For others, it's just a low-grade guilt, just all your failures, all the ways everything you've ever done today is not quite what it was intended to be, and so you need to recognize that you're not quite what you could be with God, not quite as accepted as you could be with God. And so even though you sort of know if you put all the pieces together that you're a Christian, there's this living in this low-level depression because you have not finally finished any perfect work even today. And to those things, you need to answer the devil. It is finished. Every single thing that needed to be done to accomplish my salvation has been done. We need to learn to fight the devil like Martin Luther. The devil would come to Martin Luther and the devil, Martin Luther was said, said, would bring him all of his sins to mind and he would say, good devil, bring all of those sins to my mind because as surely as those sins are real, Christ's atoning sacrifice for me is real. When you remind me of my sins, you only succeed in reminding me of my savior. And there has to be this death knell to the devil. It is finished. For other Christians, it's their past. How they didn't do all they wanted to do as a parent. How they didn't want to do all they, did, all they wanted to do as a single person. How they, how they never lived up and the past behind them is something ragged rather than something glorious. And the devil will work you over with accusations and destroy your joy and take it away. And all of that is done away with when you remind yourself All of my sins are gone. It is finished. This note of of, of finality, brothers and sisters, it it rings forth throughout the New Testament. It's, It's there all the time. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, but by the offering of one sacrifice, he has forever taken away all sins. He died, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. There's this constant drumbeat in the New Testament of it is finished. There's this finality. There's this it is done. The Lamb of God has taken away the sins of the world. And honestly, for many of us, before we attempt any more resolves for God, we would be good to just sit and bask in the reality that all that is needed to accomplish our salvation 
has been accomplished. I'll leave you with these verses from Colossians. They speak specifically to our spiritual warfare. Paul says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. Rulers and authorities, that's demon language. That's the same language Paul uses in Ephesians when he's talking about wrestling not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And here he says that God disarmed the rulers and authorities, like he took the bullets out of their gun, like he dulled their blade. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. How? How did he disarm the demonic? How did he disarm the devil? How did he end the power of the accuser? Having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. And I can't close without saying to you, if you've never believed in Jesus Christ, you can believe him tonight. His finished work doesn't require you to add anything to it. No good resolves, no perfect obedience, no I'll do better next time. But just casting yourself as a sinner in front of him. Taking him as your savior who's done something for you something finished you don't need to add to, something finished you only need to receive. In the Gospel of John, he describes this finished work as bread. He says he is the living bread, and, and the bread that he gives for the world is his death on the cross. And if you take Jesus like bread, you, you eat him with the mouth of the soul and take him in trusting him, all your sins are forgiven. And all the death that's dominated your heart begins to rule in new and unstoppable and eternal life. Trust him, believe him. Lord, we come before you. We thank you for dying on the cross. We thank you for the death of death in your death, Lord Jesus. We pray that we would not just hear these things, but that you would bring such an assurance of salvation to your people, built completely on the finished work of Christ, that, Lord, we would be a people full of joy unspeakable and full of glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.